Hello, Capital Region. This is the Hudson Mohawk Magazine on WOOC LP 105.3 FM in Troy and WOOS LP 98.9 FM in Schenectady, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy. I'm Guy Schaefer. Today on the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, first, Mark Dunley brings us voices from the statewide Day of Action for Marijuana Justice, organized by Smart New York, Start Smart New York Coalition and the Drug Policy Alliance. Then, roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry brings us part one of his conversation with Hudson Valley Community College professor Temu Chambers about her 365 Days a Year Black History Educational Video Project. After that, Steve Pierce speaks with Western Governors University Regional Vice President Rebecca Watts about the growing need for universal broadband during the pandemic. Then, Sina Bazila Hickey brings us coverage of Columbia County Sanctuary Movement's rally to support legislation to establish a fund for excluded workers. We've also got Troy Prep Media Club members Layla Traore and Treasure Irvin speaking with Deacon Jerry Ford of Team Hero about this weekend's drive through food pantry at Troy Prep High School. And to close out the show, HMM Steve Pierce speaks with Times Union food columnist Steve Barnes about the future of restaurants. But first, here are the headlines. The Times Union reports that state and national teachers unions are calling on school districts to ramp up COVID testing efforts for students and staff as many explore ways to bring more students back for in-person instruction for the remainder of the school year. The union said districts should look to models used in New York City schools and SUNY campuses and by the NFL to create or expand their own testing programs. The unions are also calling for federal and state funds to implement testing. The Gazette reported that over 175 people attended a forum on the proposed merger of Ellis Medicine and St. Peter's Health Partners Thursday, organized by the Schenectady Coalition for Healthcare Access. St. Peter's is a Catholic hospital, and many are worried that the merger seeks to re restrict access to reproductive health care services and access for LGBTQ members and sexual assault survivors. Some raise questions about access to contraception. Ellis reportedly plans to eliminate the dental clinic and visiting nurses' services and will outsource the emergency room department. The draft reform plan for the Schenectady Police Department calls for more officers to be trained in how to deal with mental health issues, homelessness, and community issues. Other recommendations include increasing diversity and re-emphasizing de-escalation as a priority in all officer training, including limiting the police response in situations in which one party in a dispute may be trying to intimidate the other by calling the police. The City Council will hold a virtual community meeting Monday night at 5.30 to receive public input on the plan's 20 recommendations. And a man who was beaten last year by Schenectady County Jail Guard filed notice of a claim against the county claiming other jail guards ignored his cries for help while their colleague delivered a brutal beating that left him with several broken, lung, broken bones and a collapsed lung. On March 3rd, the Start Smart New York Coalition, Drug Policy Alliance, and additional allies held a statewide day of action for marijuana justice, calling on the legislature and Governor Cuomo to legalize cannabis by passing the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act. We hear first from Joanza Williams, organizing director of Vocal New York, Kumar Rao of Working Families Party, Yusuf Abdul Qadir of NYCLU, and Orlando Dickinson, Partnership for the Common Good. Brought to you by Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. On March 3rd, 
the Start Smart New York Coalition, Drug Policy Alliance, and other allies held a statewide day of action for marijuana justice, calling on the legislature and Governor Cuomo to legalize cannabis by passing the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act. We hear first from Joanza Williams, Organizing Director of Vocal New York. And I just want to thank everybody for being here this morning as we, you know, launch into this final stretch to really push to legalize marijuana across New York State to create a new industry, but not just to legalize for the sake of legalization, but to legalize marijuana and chart a path forward for how do we really implement new policy that that responds to the realities of racist prohibition, that reinvests, that restores the harms. Like, how do we make policy that is, you know, increasingly anti-racist, of class conscious and gender expansive? And that's why we're here today to talk about the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act. Governor Cuomo's legalization bill, the CRTA, still falls short in many ways. You know, we maintain that the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act is the gold standard for legalization with racial justice, social equity, and economic justice, and community reinvestment at the core. And we are urging the legislature to pass the MRTA immediately. That's held by Liz Kruger, Assembly Majority Leader, Crystal People Stokes. I mean, you know, and given that New Jersey is um, recently passed legalization and is establishing an adult use um, market just next door um, to New York, um, you know, us at the Start Smart New York Coalition and, um, you know, allies across all, all across New York State, we're really calling for a swift passage. You know, this is an opportunity and a time for us to really get this right. You know, the MRTA, is, it can secure new jobs. It secures justice and equity for millions of New Yorkers and restitution for New York communities most harmed by the war on drugs. I want to um, introduce our first speaker. I'm going to go to Kumar Rao from the Working Families Party. As, you, as Joanza mentioned, um, just recently, our neighboring state in New Jersey signed its marijuana legalization bill into law. It's well past time for New York to follow suit and correct decades of harm to Black and other communities of color disproportionately impacted by the criminalization of marijuana. But we can't legalize marijuana in a way that doesn't address and reverse those harms. We can't legalize marijuana in a way that doesn't invest in communities targeted by criminalization. That's why the Working Families Party strongly supports efforts to pass the MRTA this year. I'm a former public defender in New York City, so I certainly know how horrible marijuana prosecutions uh, were in this state. Simple marijuana possession was long one of the top misdemeanor arrests in New York and for decades harmed Black and brown people, families, and whole communities. As our party state director Sochi Nameka and DPA's executive director Cassandra Frederick shared in a recent op-ed, and I'm just going to quote it, what they wrote was that adult use marijuana regulation must address the harms wrought by the decades war, decades-long war on drugs. Treating this as an issue of both economic justice and criminal justice reform, New York must use must use any legalization proposal as a vehicle to right the wrongs of the past and build the foundations for a more equitable future. Now we know Governor Cuomo included marijuana legalization in this year's budget proposal, but the plan falls well short. In addition to not including real community-led reinvestment, his legalization plans includes many provisions that will continue to criminalize communities. So we need the MRTA. We need it passed immediately. Last year, millions of New Yorkers uh, across our state took to the streets and to the ballot box calling for an end to structural anti-Black racism and a demand for real racial justice. 
So the New York legislature and this governor both have a mandate and obligation to advance racial and economic justice legislation this term. And, you know, the campaign to legalize the Marijuana Regulation and Taxation Act really gets us, you know, closer to building an equitable system for all people across New York State. But, you know, we really got to start at the at, at the center of the people most harmed. And I think that our next speaker um, will be able to help us really understand that. And I, so our next speaker is going to be Yusuf Abdul Qadir, the senior strategist for racial justice at the New York Civil Liberties Union. This is my third year doing this. And as we say, third, third, you know, third time to charm. Um, the, the people pushed for two years ago for the, for the Democrats to take control over the state Senate. And now it's time. It's been time. And we often talk about this issue centering around the war on drugs. And we use the language of the war on drugs as a failed war, except it's not. It, it has succeeded efficiently at achieving the goals that it was set out to do to ensure that we criminalize black and brown and poor communities across New York State. I am sitting sitting here with you all today in Syracuse, New York, because we have to be clear, this is not just a downstate issue. This is not just a New York City issue. This is not just an issue that affects the five boroughs. I'm originally from the Bronx. It did not just affect the Bronx. This war on drugs, this devastating, trauma to black and brown communities affected and is still affecting today communities in the city of Syracuse. Communities like the city communities in, in Rochester and in Buffalo, communities like Utica and urban, rural and suburban communities. This policy is destroying lives of black and brown communities for decades across the entire state of New York. Decriminalization was an important effort to move this issue forward, but it is not enough. We are still seeing pretextual searches being done of individuals. Officers saying, we have to stop you because we smell marijuana in your vehicle. Whether they do or, or don't, it's irrespective to the fact that this is used as an opportunity to entrench people into the criminal legal system. It's a part of a series of, of policies and practices that build an ecosystem to continue to maintain a racial caste system wrought upon the backs of black and brown people across the state of New York. The governor's bill is not adequate. The governor's bill is not adequate. Kumar Jawanza spoke to many of the reasons why, but let me take it a little further as to why it's not just important for us to decriminalize or to legalize, but to ensure that we have justice at the center of this issue. The MRTA has stronger social equity and community reinvestment components and provisions than the governor's bill. This is important because it's not just essential that we are able to tax this area and get new revenue streams and be able to allocate this to whatever fund the government may choose. It's about making sure that the communities that have been devastated, that these communities that have been devastated by the war on drugs, that they are getting some reparatory justice and that we're restoring those communities back to the damage that was wrought against them, and that we are specifically and exclusively reinvesting in those communities. That is at the core of what the MRTA does that the governor's bill does not. It's essential for us to address the records of people who have been convicted of marijuana by making sure that the people who were funneled into the school to prison pipeline and who were funneled into the drug trade and who were put into, into the carceral state for selling dime bags on the corner because they were given little to no other opportunity or recourse are able to take those entrepreneurial skills and benefit from this industry. Once again, Joanza Williams. And um, you know, I just want to point out before I take us to our next speaker, some of the ways, the concrete ways that Governor Cuomo's um, CRTA bill still fails in comparison to the MRTA. Um, one, it leaves 
waives many criminal penalties. It does not prohibit police from using odor to justify stops and searches. Um, does not provide for automatic expungement of past convictions. It does not address collateral consequences. Specifically does not have relief for immigrants or child welfare. It does not have actual community-led reinvestment with lockboxes for funds. Um, you know, um, governance structure of the Office of Cannabis Management makes it beholden to Governor Cuomo. Um, equity and accountability is not strong enough. Still no home cultivation. There's still no on-site consumption licenses, which is a big issue for people that live in public housing. So, you know, really the, the crux of what is, we're trying to illustrate here is that the Governor Cuomo's legalization proposal, it does not operate from the same framework that is anti-racist, that is class conscious, that is gender expansive, that is trying to really re- a paradigm shift how we're going to build um, a new industry that is equitable, an industry that accounts for the realities of racist prohibition. For the decades that this has happened across New York State, as Yusuf reminds us, this is not just a New York City, not just a a Bronx, not just a Brooklyn issue, but this is an issue for all New Yorkers, in particular for Black, Brown, and poor people. Um, and we need to be building the kind of industry that is actually going to respond to that lived reality. So our next speaker I want to bring up is Orlando Dixon from Partnership for the Public Good. Um, so thank you for having me. I really appreciate this opportunity to speak about like the Western New York and Erie County perspective. It, for a state that's like decriminalized marijuana years ago, it's shocking how many people still are arrested for possessing it over like five years. I think we did a study from like 2012 to 2016. There was like 2,700 people and arrested for simple possession. And the CRTA still arrests people for simple possession. And that's one of the huge issues that I have with the CRTA. This has been Mark Dunley for the Hudson Mohawk Radio Network. That was Mark Dudley's coverage of the statewide Day of Action for Marijuana Justice, organized by the Start Smart New York Coalition and the Drug Policy Alliance. You just heard the voices of Jawanza Williams, organizing director of Vocal New York, Kumar Rao of Working Families Party, Yusuf Abdul Qadir of NYCLU, and Orlando Dickinson of the Partnership for the Common Good. Hudson Mohawk Magazine Network labor, roaming labor correspondent Willie Terry interviewed Hudson Valley Community College professor Tamu Chambers about her 365 days a year Black history educational video project. This segment is part one of a three-part interview. This is Willie Terry, your roaming labor correspondent for the WOOC uh, radio. And I'm here today with Ms. Tumar Chambers, who's a professor at Hudson Valley Community College. And how you doing, Ms. Chamber? Oh, very good. Thank you. All right. And I do want to say that I was a student of Ms. Chambers, and I didn't go there this year because of the COVID. Ms. Chambers uh, is uh, doing a Black History Month project. Ms. Chambers, tell me something about that project. Okay. Well, Willie, I'm really excited to share the information about the project. Of course, um, Black History Month and Kwanzaa. You know, like a celebration, um, you know, like certainly of the many uh, accomplishments of African Americans that have been um, either um, denied or pretty much um, not taken, um, you know, like seriously or stolen. And so, um, you know, like consequently, it's really great to share about Kwanzaa and the connection. And I think that that's really important, the connection with um, Black History Month. And uh, also, I highlight the program with 
Oh, one of my favorite um, characters, and that is with uh, the Black Panther, which I, I explain in the uh, in the video. Because some people would say, why would a um, cartoon um, character really have that kind of influence? So, and just to back it up a little bit, I start out with, um, of course, Dr. Martin Luther King. And with um, Dr. King, uh, when, as I talk about um, the three evils and how we continue to overcome um, those according to all the things that he, or, yeah, all the things that he had contributed and fought for. And, and then I just segue um, right into Dr. Milana Karenga, the founder of Kwanzaa and why that's so important, because we need to practice his um, comments and the structure that he has for Kwanzaa um, for the entire year, not just for the holiday or, or around um, Christmas. And so that's equally um, important. And then, of course, the uh, beauty of um, Bozeman, who died too soon, unfortunately. And I always say, "What rest in power, rest in peace. And what he was able to do with that movie um, certainly was to enlighten African-Americans who do not know or understand their history and the larger um, society. He was, because of that video, and others have written um, about it and the obituaries um, and so forth, he brought many African-Americans to understand and be proud of their um, culture. Forget about a lot of the naysayers and the information that they say about Africa instead of the beauty of Africa. And so those things are really important to note. And even um, now, when at one point where black movies allegedly wouldn't sell and um, they weren't getting the same kind of opportunities as other films um, had received, he shattered that whole setting. Um, he shattered it to the extent uh, with uh, Black Panther, it, which becomes one of, if not the largest money um, earning um, uh, video of all time here and the U.S., of course, and uh, consequently United, uh, globally as well. You mean the movie? Yeah, the movie. So that really opened um, the eyes of uh, many individuals, and specifically um, as an educator with students, um, black and brown students, they have an opportunity now to really reflect upon themselves through the superhero um, um, that he played. And he will always be, um, and here in America, their king. And so from the educational point of view, it was really exciting for them to be able like, to see um, Mike Bozeman, this activist, um, an amazing scholar. He brought to life all the um, amazing you know, individuals, uh, Jackie Robinson. And he brought that um, to life. Yeah, I know. I noticed. I noticed he was in a lot of movies, you know, movies that I didn't even know about. Yeah, at such a young age. At young yes, age. Absolutely. <laughs> Willie, that was really unique, important, unique with understanding that so that the um, younger generation, too, gets a better picture of um, these icons. And uh, and one another person that, as you know, uh, was extremely important was Thurgood Marshall. And um, all the way up to this uh, movie, or um, pretty much so many, um, like others, as I said, um, with Black Panther, no one thought that it would have ever had that kind of um, reception from 
all people, people of all different races and so forth. So it, it was exciting I mean, to do that because as an educator, we have to take um, our young people, you know, like where they are. And so this is another thing that I did, Willie, just for the uniqueness of the program. Um, I salute teachers um, because teachers, they should not have to have uh, or hold the entire responsibility of, um, of educating you like our students and what they do from K through 12 um, is really amazing um, they uh, prepare them for college they have prepared them for Hudson Valley Community College and that's a pretty amazing thing and then at Hudson Valley Community College we prepare them for their for the next um, college or for the other um, SUNY schools specifically um, whether or not it's the, to finish or their uh, course um, or whatever they feel or how they feel about what they want to do with their career if it's a four-year or as you know it goes all the way up to the um, PhD so um, you know that's exciting also and what I've done I also um, created or updated the Kwanzaa fact book and the curriculum so all all of the teachers or any teachers through you know, K through 12 throughout the capital region they have that or they can use that and uh, also with the students I offer a Q&A um, you know, based on the schedule, of course, with the students as well, so that, the, again, the students can see or actually view the entire um, program and then have the Q&A. And uh, then the teachers, of course, because now with COVID, everyone, um, more or less, because of their budgets are really um, limited, they are able to um, just click on the virtual presentation and the booklet and also the... Um, Oh, the curriculum for the students as well. So, so um, what? What is? Where are some of the places that have you uh, shown this project? Well, um, as I mentioned, Willie, it's a virtual one, oh, and you know, because clearly with the COVID, um, it's very difficult. And within the schools, and um, as you know, many of them, they open and they close depending on um, what is happening as far as COVID is concerned. So I was pleased to um, have a response. Oh, it was actually a immediate response from um, Albany High School because mm -hmm. they have over 2,000 um, you know, students uh, there. Mm -hmm. And also islamic school there um you know, like in schenectady mm -hmm. uh and he again he was a former student of mine and now he is the president of the school at hudson valley uh, community college with the uh, faculty or staff anyone who wants the copy um or the video share with their um with their with their students mm -hmm. also uh so it, it's it's like a win-win um situation and all of this is because I work at such an amazing college where we have right. the technology and we can do all these things. Right, but I want to say, too, that you have a history, a amazing history of doing things in terms of black education. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about you? Oh, gee, that's <laughs> yeah. always hard. And, my, um, and, and actually, my mentors and, and also when I'm on with programs, I uh, just do things. This, this is natural to me, mm -hmm. and I don't really, um, I, I, well, let's put it this way. It wasn't until recently, or when I say recently, probably like the last decade, when I was really surprised that not everyone feels that way about um, you know, contributing or giving back. Um, too many of us today are 
more concerned about our titles, our trophies, our trinkets, instead of um, our primary role should be, um, or at least in my opinion, should be um, higher um, you know, like education. If you're in higher education, then you should make sure that education is higher um, for the students because we under, uh, yeah, I would have to say underlook the fact that um, our students, as uh, quaint as this might um, sound, they are our future. That was HMM's roaming labor correspondent, Willie Terry, speaking with Hudson Valley Community College, Professor Tamu Chambers, creators of the 365 Days a Year Black History Educational Video Project. That was part one of a three-part interview. You can hear the rest at mediasanctuary.org. Next, HMM correspondent Steve Pierce speaks with Western Governors University Regional Vice President, Rebecca Watts, about the growing need for universal broadband during the pandemic. For more than 25 years, WGU has been providing low-cost online college education for non-traditional students. Western Governors University is an accredited, nonprofit, comprehensive university offering competency-based programs for adult learners that lead to in-demand careers. So it's part of the uh, broad spectrum of online learning that's available now, and I, which I guess is more in the public eye than ever before. It certainly has become a heightened need in the times of pandemic. So we hear an awful lot now about the uh, impact of uh, online learning on students in the, the uh, early education, not so much um, higher education, uh, ranging from the social cost of, uh, of online learning and the lack of socialization for young people, uh, all the way to the difficulty of getting access to the education because of the lack of universal broadband. Uh, where does uh, WGU fit into that uh, spectrum there? Is, it, is that a challenge for you as well? It is a challenge for our students or our prospective students. So for us, it's a, it's a policy issue that we want to pay close attention to. We feel like opportunity is being withheld from people in certain rural communities, but also in some urban communities, simply because they don't have access to high-speed internet broadband because of the cost. So it's, it's, we believe it's an issue because it, it really is a barrier to opportunity. And is this something that's been heightened for you and your students because of the pandemic, or is it just more of what you've been dealing with since the uh, university was founded in the 1990s? It is really more of what we've been trying to address since we were founded in 1997. So it, it has been heightened in the pandemic simply because of, for example, if high-speed internet broadband is not available to a family, and now all of a sudden the K-12 learners, the children in that family are at home as well, now you've really kind of used up the capacity for learning in that home, and so it is a zero-sum game. If there's only so much bandwidth in a, in a household, it's, it's being tapped. So the pandemic has affected it for some of our students in that way. So the Albany Common Council was just in the news uh, having ordered a study on uh, municipal internet. Does the uh, Western Governors University have a position on those types of initiatives? We really applaud any entity. If, if it's the federal government, it's the state government, it's a, it's a city council. It is really important for the question to be asked and because we need to know specific needs that are hyper-local and how best to address those needs. So we, we really applaud the Common Council on that vote to do that, to commission that study.
So uh, the digital divide has been an issue for decades. Um, do you find that the moment makes it uh, more uh, likely that there'll be traction on the issue and maybe some progress made? Because now really the thing that is universal is the need for broadband. Absolutely correct. The moment is here. The moment has been here since we're coming up close to a year since the, the need became so great because of the need to isolate due to the pandemic. A light has shown on that to show how stark the, the differences are in the digital divide. We see it most profoundly when we look at K-12 learners because of the rapid shift to learning from home and so many students in poverty, so many students in rural areas were not able to access the learning that they needed. But the need has been there all along. It's just, in, in fact, the pandemic has really heightened the attention to it. And potentially a good outcome would be that we have recognized a need that has existed for a long period of time and it will get the time and attention that it deserves. It seems like a real challenge in that you both have a very obvious uh, growing need for universal broadband. At the same time as there's, a, it seems like a growing consensus in the country that everything should be privatized. And uh, most of what I've seen about universal broadband suggests that the best way of doing that is with municipal ownership, public ownership of the infrastructure. How do you reconcile those two things? A public consciousness that's really opposed to public ownership of utilities with a crushing need for it. This is how I think of it. When we look at essential services that every individual in a community needs, and so let's talk about high-speed internet broadband service being one of those essential services. If people cannot access the learning that they need, the resources that they need to learn, to grow, to be able to be eligible for a thriving wage job, then the whole community suffers. A rising tide does lift all boats. So when everyone has access to what they need to learn, it strengthens the economics of the community, it strengthens the talent pipeline for existing employers, and it strengthens the community's ability to be able to attract new business and industry because they can now talk about the talent pipeline that that community has to offer. So it is a community investment in the greater good that yes, it does serve individuals and families, but more importantly, it serves the community as a whole. Why would people be opposed to it? It sounds like a no-brainer. Why shouldn't we have free or accessible broadband for everyone in, in the view of people who are opposed to it? In the view of people who are opposed to it, it is the, we hear this often in uh, shared services. I'll, I'll use the term shared services. Why should I pay for somebody else's service? Why not let everyone pay for their own service, pay for their whatever whatever the service is. So I'll use the example of K-12 education. K-12 education is funded by the people for the community, for the common good, for learning. I would argue that the, the people who argue against uh, being required to contribute to K-12 education to being akin to the argument about not wanting to contribute to an essential service like high-speed internet. It is that same fundamental argument, why should I pay for it? I'm not a direct beneficiary of, of everything that's being provided. Yeah, you hear that very commonly, uh, resistance to paying school taxes by people without kids, largely older people. Why should I pay those taxes? I don't have any kids or my kids are grown up. That's correct. 
but everyone in the community, regardless of age, benefits from high quality K-12 schools and the employment that results when we have a learned populace. So it doesn't matter what age you are, you benefit from the, the education and the elevated learning of everyone in the community. So what's your vision? If you could have anything you want, anything you need for Western Governors University, what would it look like in terms of broadband infrastructure? It would be that the infrastructure would be there regardless of where a person lives. And it would be that the infrastructure and the service delivery would provide accommodation for cost. So for low-income families, that there would be some opportunity for them to pay a lesser fee to have high-speed internet broadband. The libraries have been great. Community centers have been great to offer this, this service, but it's not always possible to get there. And then from Western Governors University's perspective, there also is the rural issue. So access through a community library is not possible. We need to be able to have in all areas, whether it's an urban area, a suburban area or a rural area, we need people to be able to have access regardless of where you live. Where you live should not provide a barrier to your ability to further your learning. It looks like a real challenge in New York State because uh, certainly upstate were, you know, I would say that most of the uh, municipalities and many of the communities are really on the ropes financially. So when you come, say, to the city of Troy, where just meeting basic budgetary uh, demands is a challenge every year. It's not possible to come to the city council and suggest spending money on anything that isn't related to basic uh, city services. Although I know you could make the argument that this is or should be a basic city service, but it's a new one. And so it's really punting what seems to be a statewide or national issue to a local level where it's the least likely to be able to be addressed. You don't have the expertise, you don't have the money, you know, all the things that are necessary to implement a high technology service seem like they should be done at a higher uh, government level than local. So one thing that you can say though, for example, to a Troy leader is that you could say, are you advocating at the state level? Are you advocating at the federal level? Are you exploring grant opportunities? Are you talking to providers? It's not always that the municipality would have to fund it. It is how are you connecting? How are you advocating? Are you looking at public-private partnerships? Are there any regulatory issues that a municipality has in place that is constraining a provider's ability to be able to uh, deliver in, in a more broad-based way at a, at a lower cost for, for those who need it. It's not always funding. Sometimes it is policy. Well, thank you very much for going into these issues, uh, Rebecca. If people are interested in getting more information about Western Governors University, where can they go? WGU.edu. That was HMM Steve Pierce speaking with Western Governors University Regional Vice President Rebecca Watts. In the words of Columbia County Sanctuary Movement, a coalition of excluded workers, immigrants' rights advocates, and clergy joined by local elected officials participated in a statewide day of action in support of legislation to establish a fund for excluded workers. The bill, sponsored by Senator Jessica Ramos, would, would create a fund to provide cash assistance to individuals and families facing economic hardship due to the pandemic. The fund would cover New Yorkers, including undocumented workers, shut out from federal relief packages passed by Congress. Hudson Mohawk Magazine attended the press conference in Hudson, New York. 
On Friday, March 5th, there was a day of action across New York State to bring COVID-19 financial aid to excluded New Yorkers. Rallies and marches were held in Albany, Hudson, Kingston, New York City, and Syracuse to urge state leaders to provide cash assistance to immigrant New York families excluded from all federal COVID relief efforts. Hudson Mohawk Magazine attended an event in Hudson, New York, organized by Columbia County Sanctuary Movement. Surrounded by boxes filled with food that were being prepared to be delivered to families in need, Brian McCormick of Columbia County Sanctuary Movement introduced speakers one by one. So thank you all for joining us here today. We are a diverse and representative coalition of organizations who are demanding a worker bailout fund for excluded workers. We are here today to show that this is a statewide issue. There are excluded workers everywhere. They're in our restaurants, they're in our farms, and they're on the front line of this pandemic. Some people ask who, who are the excluded workers that we're talking about. The three main categories are undocumented folks, people who are recently released from incarceration and therefore don't have the job history to qualify for unemployment, as well as cash economy workers like folks in restaurants, street vendors, and domestic workers. Speaking at the event were directly impacted people, coalition members, faith leaders, and elected officials. My name is Oswaldo Ramirez, and I, I live in Hudson. And I have too many feelings right now, like my electrical bill is like very high right now, and I don't have enough work for um, my rent. is like every single time it's coming, no stop and the pandemic is stopped to the workers. Like, you can work, you can do nothing to do, you don't have, ah, it's very hard right now. And also, my family is like, I don't have enough support for him, for, I have my three kids, my wife, um, everything needs support right now. My name is Jarena Hen. I'm speaking on behalf of Jago Hudson. We are an organization that takes a stand against domestic and gender-based violence in our community. As millions of Americans were sent home from work and school due to the pandemic, many of us had the privilege to be safe and comfortable. But many others went home to violence and abuse that they were able to escape for hours in the day by either going to school or work. Domestic and gender-based violence has skyrocketed throughout the pandemic. Survivors of abuse continue to suffer at the hands of their abusers because financial dependency is preventing them from leaving. Excluded workers who are survivors need relief now. Excluded workers who are survivors need relief yesterday. We can not keep turning away and excluding the poor, the hungry and the huddle masses that we vowed as a nation to protect. New York State needs to act now. Let's get this done the right way and set an example for the entire nation to follow. Thank you.
Today I would like to invite Quentin Cross, Senior Policy Advisor to the Hudson Catskill Housing Coalition to share some words with us as well. If you look around in these communities here and down in the inner cities of Hudson, you see the, the food pantries lines around the corner. People are in need, they are desperate. When you look at this housing crisis, you don't, you don't know where the tipping point is. You just know people are need help. They can't pay their rent. They don't know where they're going day to day. They don't know what's going to happen. So this fund is needed now. We need the state to act now. We need our leaders to act now. We need a bailout now. I'd like to invite Thomas Kearney, who is the Capital Region Organizer for the People's Campaign for Parole Justice. Thank you. There's this idea that, uh, that prisoners aren't eligible for uh, you know, unemployment benefits because they haven't been working once they've been released. The incarcerated community is slaving on our behalf daily. When you walk through Walmart and you see those huge gallons of New York clean hand sanitizer, that's made by the incarcerated community. For pennies, <laughs> for pennies, masks for us out here. They are supporting us out here and they deserve the same support when they get released. Pastor Marcelino Mexicano, uh, he is the pastor of Centro Cristiano Renacer and our, one of our CCSM members is going to be interpreting for him. Son bendecidas alrededor de 80 familias. Uh, about 80 families uh, receive help from us. Cada semana. Every week. En el año eh, 2020. In 2020. Uh, repartimos uh, más de uh, 180 mil libras de comida. We gave out about 180,000 uh, pounds of food uh, to the community. As Pastor Marcelino mentioned, as nonprofits, we're distributing a ton of food and uh, we're working with government partners locally. The next person that I'd like to invite up to speak is Michael Chamides. Michael is a county supervisor for Columbia County representing Hudson's third ward. This is a really special location. You can see with all the food being distributed, this is an important space for people to get what they need. Um, but it's obviously, as you've heard, it's not enough. Is that, yes, we need to be distributing food so people have it, but food distribution isn't gonna get us what we need. The pandemic spreads when people are forced to make unhealthy choices. So if you're going to work because you're sick and you have to go to work, that puts everybody at risk. That spreads the pandemic. If you're moving between friends' houses because you don't have a home yourself, that puts everybody at risk, and that's how the pandemic spreads. And so how do we prevent this? We make sure that everybody has the economic support that they need so that they can make healthy choices. Furthermore, direct assistance is key to our economic recovery. What we've seen over the past year is that consumer spending and job growth are highly dependent on the status of the health crisis. Is that the worse the health crisis is, the worse the economy is. And so we need to do things so people can make healthy choices so we can fix so we can fix the pandemic and that's going to improve that's going to improve the economy furthermore it's direct assistance to low-income households that is the most effective way to increase consumer spending i'll point you to the work of opportunity insights economic tracker or the analysis of universal basic income in stockton california it's study after study shows that if you want to boost the economy you get it to the people who need it the most and that's what that's what we're missing right now is that the people who need assistance the most are being excluded from these systems and that's terrible for the economy. And what's worse is this part of a larger trend 
where economic disparity is increasing. Our community and communities across the state need New York State to step up to support essential and excluded workers on the front line of this pandemic. Our county officials and our departments are helping people access support, but it's not enough because some people are ineligible for state and federal programs. And so we need the state to step up and close this gap. I'd like to invite Hudson City Mayor Kamal Johnson to share a few words with us. Good morning, everyone. Um, thank you for being here. Um, I think this is something that's extremely important to my administration. You know, where we've always been about equity, and that means equity for everyone, excluding no one. And we've kind of shown that in some of our initiatives, our universal basic um, income initiative was open to everyone. We didn't exclude anyone. As long as you were at or under our medium income, you are eligible. And that's what relief should really be. Um, our youth center is giving away tons and tons of food every day. Uh, as you see here, they're giving away pounds and pounds of food every day, and it's still not enough. Um, you know, on the local level, we're doing everything we can, uh, but it's not enough. We need the state to support. Government is supposed to be uh, for the people, by the people, and that means all people, not just some. And we're in a pandemic now, so we need help now. We need action now. We need relief now, and that means relief for everyone. So this is a statewide issue, and we need statewide action. We are here today to say the Capital Region is ready. The Capital Region and the Hudson Valley are calling for our legislators to act now. We call on Assemblymember Barrett we call on Assemblymember Fahey, we call on Assemblymember McDonald, Santa Barbara, and Senator Hinchy to co-sign this legislation. Senator Breslin has made the bold move in the Capital Region to do the right thing and co-sponsor this legislation. And we call on all other Capital Region representatives to follow in his footsteps and heed the call of everybody here today and all excluded workers throughout our region. Thank you for joining us here today, and we hope you have a blessed evening. That, that report was brought to you by HMM Sina Bazila Hickey on the Worker Bailout Fund for Excluded Workers. The audio at the top of the episode is from a marsh in New York City, shared with permission from the Twitter account, hashtag FundExcludedWorkers. Next, Troy Prep Media Club members Leila Traore and Treasure Irvin speak with Deacon Jerry Ford of Team Hero about this weekend's drive-through food pantry at Troy Prep High School. The food pantry is Saturday, March 6th from 10 to 12 p.m. at Troy Prep High School, 2 Polk Street, Troy, New York. For more information, go to facebook.com slash uncommon Troy Prep. Hello, my name is Leila Traore. And I'm Treasure Irvin and we are members of the Troy Prep Media Club. Today we are speaking with Deacon Jerry Ford of Team Hero about the upcoming drive-through pantry this Saturday. Could you please introduce yourself and let and tell us about the food pantry? All right, uh, hello everyone. My name is Deacon Jerry Ford. Um, I am the founder of Team Hero, which is a community action agency here in the city of Troy. And uh, we've been, um, tackling food insecurity since the whole uh, pandemic, providing um, food distributions uh, throughout the city of Troy. And we've also participated in some in Albany also. And so um, uh, this is very important because um, the pandemic has, you know, left a, a lot of 
food um, insecurity. Um, we saw an increase in food insecurity since the pandemic. But even prior to that, we know that food insecurity is, has been a problem in a lot of our communities here in Troy. So um, when the opportunity came to partner with um, Troy Prep, it was like almost a no-brainer. Yeah, so there have been other food distribution at Troy Prep since the pandemic started. How long have you been planning this weekend event? So this uh, started, I think, uh, maybe a few weeks ago, um, the planning phases, and it was just mostly connecting the dots with everyone. Um, uh, someone reached out to us, um, who was a representative, I believe, from Troy Prep and Kip. And uh, once we all you know, got on the same page, um, it was like a green light from there. So maybe a few weeks to answer your question. Okay, so why did you decide to plan this event? Yep, and, and as I stated, man, um, you know, food insecurity has has increased since the pandemic. People are have been um, laid off from their jobs. Um, we saw um, since a lot of the the youth and the students are at home, um, so that you know they're eating more at home. They're not receiving the meals that they will usually receive during school 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 times, and so they're at home more than um, a lot of people. Like I said, have been laid off from their jobs. So that if you're laid off from your job, you would see a, a, de a decrease in your in your, your home income and um, and your, your food bill doesn't really care about your decreasing income because everybody's still hungry. So we understood that it was important to, you know, make sure that um, people still can have the same level of food in their homes for their families. I support things like this because I believe that people that don't um that aren't like able to get food like get help from like other people that can definitely Matt you know we we've seen um a, a great um coming together of our communities and which is amazing and, and um and so you know each one teach one each you know um each neighbor looks out for each other so this coming together and being able to provide one for another is, is basically what the definition of community is, unity. Have many people been taking advantage of this? Most definitely. Um, there was, a, there was a, um, a few distribution that was organized by um, Steven Figueroa. He's actually the head of our um, food and security initiative. And that was on last week. And I think he had almost about 600 boxes. Yeah, they were they were gone within about an hour. So um, it was excellent um, that it's, it's, this is being offered because people are definitely taking advantage of it. Why do you think it is important to have a, few, a food drive during the pandemic? Yeah, like I said, um, the fact that, um, that we've seen like people losing their jobs and some people even, even not even losing their job, like people are on quarantine. So they're home in their, in their homes and they're, and they're on quarantine and they can't get out to work. So there's a lot of different factors um, that um, make it necessary, very necessary for us to do these type of activities continuously. I think this may be like our, our seventh or our eighth one that we've been doing in the city of Troy. Okay, so even after the pandemic, are y'all going to continue to do food drives to help homes? Yes, um, we will continue to do it. Uh, we'll figure out a, a way to, to keep this flowing into the community. And um, we've been partnering also with some of the local food pantries themselves, like CEO and Unity House. 
And so um, just, you know, trying to make sure that all the needs are met for the members of our community who are less fortunate. I think this is a um, good thing because you're not only helping out yourself, you're helping out other, like, like you said, our unity and the people around us. And helping out your community is a good thing because you're not just thinking about yourself, you have other people to think about. So I just wanna say, I appreciate what you're doing for the community and keep on doing it. But is there anything else that you would like to add? Um, I appreciate you y'all bringing me onto your platform, your media club, and allowing me to speak about it. And because you've done this, um, we'll be able hopefully to reach more people. So um, congratulations to you for the work that you're putting in. And I wish y'all, you know, the best as y'all continue to move forward. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. All right, no problem. Enjoy. And hopefully you could bring me back another time and we could talk about some different things. Definitely. That was Troy Prep Media Club members Layla Traore and Treasure Irvin speaking with Deacon Jerry Ford of Team Hero. The food pantry will be held Saturday, March 6th from 10 to 12 p.m. at Troy Prep High School, uh, uh, 10 a.m. to 12 p.m. at Troy Prep High School, 2 Polk Street, Troy, New York. For more information, go to facebook.com slash uncommontroyprep. And to learn more about Team Hero and contact Deacon Jerry Ford, go to teamhero101.org. And to close out the show, HMM correspondent Steve Pierce spoke with Albany, Albany Times Union food writer Steve Barnes about the post-pandemic future of local restaurants in the fourth part of their interview. I'm Steve Barnes. I am a senior writer, restaurant columnist, and theater critic for the Times Union. I wonder if you could gaze in your crystal ball and, and suggest what you think the in the local restaurant industry, uh, particularly, what do you think is the short-term future and then in the long run? What's going to come out of all this? Uh, short-term is people are going to start sitting outside as soon as possible. Because what Valentine's weekend showed us is that people are desperate to get out of the house. And Valentine's was a good excuse. Uh, places like Jack's Oyster House, which hadn't been doing, they'd only been doing takeout. They opened for in-house dining for Valentine's weekend only. And more than a week before the, the weekend, they sold out all three days, completely filled up. Um, and so people really want to be out. And I think, whereas in the past, restaurants might've thought, oh, you know, we'll wait till April 30th uh, to put out our tables. I think as soon as it's 40 degrees and not raining, people are going to be clamoring to sit outside. Uh, so that will be, and, and municipalities have been really good about that. Uh, you know, Water Fleet, for instance, because it's a small community and could do this, basically said, oh yeah, hey, just call City Hall and, and we'll let you uh, shut down the street in front of your restaurant. We'll let you take over the whole side. Albany complete, which was, Albany was always very strict with its outdoor seating and the inspectors going around and measuring things and all sorts of stuff. They completely relaxed it. They even took places where they shut down the parking lanes, the curbside parking lanes, so restaurant tables could occupy the complete sidewalks, and then they put up barriers, so then the parking lanes became the sidewalks where pedestrians could walk. That happened in a variety of places. There was a street blocked off uh, downtown Albany, Troy, 2nd Street, and also around the corner on uh, Broadway between 2nd and 3rd was shut down just to fill those fill those spaces with outdoor tables and I, that is gonna come back. That's gonna be, that's gonna be the real lifeline because we don't know how long it's gonna take for the next federal 
uh, federal stimulus uh, and aid packages to come through and exactly what they'll entail and how fast the restaurants are going to get them and how much they're going to get. Because who knows? I mean, if you if you lost a third of your annual revenue last year, um, are you going to make that up in one in one check from the federal government? Probably not. So the near term outdoor dining as much as possible, continued takeout, uh, continued flexibility, adaptability, and in the next six months, as more and more people get vaccinated, uh, once we get up to what we believe to be, you know, what's the safety level, 75% or so that, that people, more people will feel safe to go back out, uh, then we'll see the shakeout. Places that had been hibernating uh, may just slowly go away and you'll start seeing for rent signs going up on windows for places that still have Facebook pages up, but haven't been in business for 12, 13, 14 months. Um, the long term, I think takeout will continue to be a big thing because people, people really like it. And the way the communities have battled back against the big, big delivery services, capping what had been just criminal fees, saying you cannot charge restaurants this much just because they need you. You can't really just abscond with that, with that money. So places will continue to be adapted to takeout and delivery because people have liked it, you know, in the way that uh, I started getting grocery delivery um, not because of the pandemic, but I think it was uh, just because at one point I was lazy and I was like, hey, I want to try this. And I really liked grocery delivery. And then throughout the pandemic, it just I wasn't I wasn't scared. Uh, I just wasn't I didn't have to go out. My grocery shopping was always, you know, during my commute on the way home from work. I'd stop at the grocery store. But since I've been working from home for 11 months going on a year now, you know, I wasn't going out. And so I started getting grocery delivery and now I'm accustomed to it. It's something that I, that I like. I certainly have gotten more food delivery uh, just because it's convenient. And I think places will uh, accommodate to that. And I, But I also do think that there will be newer and younger people coming in because of available spaces. And there should be a surge in culinary and conceptual creativity coming into 2022 and beyond as people take what they've learned during the pandemic and say, we're going to try some things. Uh, because what, we, what, did we, what did we learn? There's a whole lot of different ways to do things that we didn't know were possible. So why not? And the restaurant industry, as I said earlier, is, is relatively easy to get into. So why not try it? Well, something to look forward to. Anything you want to add? We've had a long discussion here, but you, it sounds like there's always more. Oh, no, I'm good. I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Thanks so much, Steve. I'll be looking for you in the newspaper. That was HMM Steve Pierce speaking with the Times Union's Steve Barnes. You can find the full interview online at mediasanctuary.org. And that concludes our show. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Hudson Mohawk Magazine. I'm Guy Schaefer, and our engineer tonight is Sina Bazila Hickey. Tune in every weekday at 7 a.m., 9 a.m., and 6 p.m. to hear local news. You can find all the stories on today's program at mediasanctuary.org and on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash WOC 105.3 FM. Until next time, folks, thanks for tuning in.